Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here after the longest ever break in the action since the founding of the CHP. In this episode, I'd like to launch a new China History Podcast 10-part series covering the history of tea. Some of you may recall from more than a year ago, I mentioned possibly doing a podcast on this subject. After a year-long drumbeat of steady email requests to cover this topic and realizing talk is cheap, the whole team here at the CHP is finally making good on this, up till now, unfulfilled promise. I'm going to discuss the history of tea in China, from the ancient times of the Sanhuangwu Di all the way into our modern age. The Sanhuangwu Di covered long ago in CHP episode 60, the mythical three sovereigns and five emperors. Ti's history is quite a story, and as we often do here at the Royal China History Podcast, we grossly underestimated the magnitude of this topic. But I hope the length of the series doesn't deter you from listening all the way to the end. It gets better as we go along. This much, let me assure you. In the following episodes, we'll look at the history of tea from its most legendary beginnings going back 47 centuries ago and take it all the way up to the 20th century. The focus will be on the history of tea as it relates to China. All these other places, Japan and Korea especially, Indonesia, Vietnam, India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Turkey, Iran, Russia, Egypt, Kenya, in fact, all the something like 50 countries who grow and pick tea, they all have their own unique tea history and tea culture. So as I'm often forced to do as the decider, I made an executive decision to focus this History of Tea series solely on the history of tea in China. This is a very big umbrella, so I'll try and fit in as much tea history as I can at no additional cost to you whatsoever. First, let me say a few things before we wade into the shallow end and start looking at tea. All the greatest, most accomplished, respected, and admired tea experts all over the world had mentors who inspired and guided them in learning about tea. Nobody is born an aficionado. The greatest tea masters and experts of the 21st century will all readily admit it was their teachers and tea mentors who got them interested and who generally passed on all the centuries of wisdom and understanding about tea, how to grow it, process it, how to prepare it, and how to enjoy it to the fullest extent possible. It always starts with one person who provides that spark that opens your eyes and leads you to take the first step that leads you down the tea path. In the course of my life, I had the good fortune to meet one of China's great modern writers and tea experts, Professor Wang Xufeng. She was the recipient of the Mao Dun Literature Prize in 2000 for her work, Trilogies of Tea Men, Cha Ren San Bu Qu. She's one of the living treasures of the great tea city of Hangzhou. If not for Wang Laoshi's first inspiration, this history of tea series might have been backburnered indefinitely. I'd like to dedicate this series to Wang Laoshi for the inspiration she gave me, and no doubt to countless others, not only in China, but all around the world. She is truly one of China's most tireless tea ambassadors. 
In researching this series on the history of tea, I was fortunate to come across another living legend in the world of tea whose books provided a lot of the material for this series. This was Mr. James Norwood Pratt, author of The New Tea Lover's Treasury and The Tea Lover's Companion, among many other books. I was also immensely thankful for Mary Lou and Robert Heiss of TeaTrekker.com for their two books that I used prodigiously. These were The Story of Tea, A Cultural History and Drinking Guide, and The Tea Enthusiast's Handbook. I recommend them all, and we'll have links to every source and website mentioned over the next ten episodes. As far as tea scholarship, I and many others here in the land of liberty are beholden to Mr. William H. Euchers. Mary Lou and Robert Heiss dedicated their book, The Story of Tea, to him and said, quote, To William H. Euchers, you blaze the trail, and in your footsteps we all follow. Unquote. William H. Euchers published in 1935, Roosevelt's first term, the exhaustively researched work All About Tea. The title says it all. And though much more has been learned since Euchers published his great work, it was, was still a source that I was very happy to have at my side at all times. Thank you, Professor Endymion Wilkinson, for your great work, China History, A New Manual, for alerting me to Mr. Euchers. China History, A New Manual, previously recommended by David Moser on the Seneca Podcast, one of the greatest Western sinologists of our time, Endymion Wilkinson. There were many other works I used that some of my tea mentors recommended. YouTube and Yoku have no shortage of beautiful and educational videos about tea. There are a multitude of videos filmed right in the villages in China where you can see how they make it, step by step. I can't recommend enough the six-part CCTV documentary series, Yi Pian Shu Ye De Gu Shi. I don't know if it has an English title, but it translates to The Story of a Leaf. This documentary did a great job visually of presenting tea and showing how special it is. I'll have a link to that as well. And looking back on just the last 12 months and thinking about all the places tea has taken me and the people I've met along the way, I can really understand why tea is called, among other things, a social beverage. Whether you believe in the Garden of Eden or the Big Bang, nature gifted us with three great temperance beverages. Those are coffee, cocoa, and tea. Cocoa came to Europe first in 1528 by the great world superpower of the day, España. They brought it from the New World after the Aztec conquest in 1521. Next up was tea in 1610, thanks to the Dutch. And five years later, in 1615, Venetian traders are credited with bringing coffee if you don't include the air we breathe and the water we drink, nothing on earth is consumed in greater quantities than tea. I suspect this may have something to do with tea being the beverage of choice for most people east of zero degrees longitude. Tea became the first global commodity shipped to markets on six continents. Its history began in Asia. The Golden Triangle gave mankind not only narcotic drugs, but tea as well. That's where the original tea garden was. Tea trees have been around for more than 50 million years. Euchre said, quote, The original jungles, where tea trees grew wild, were found in the Shan states of Thailand and East Burma, Yunnan, northern Vietnam, and India. 
before all got divided up into nations, it was all one big primeval tea garden. Soil, climate, rainfall, everything was perfect to propagate the species, unquote. Wherever it was, Yunnan, Sichuan, or wherever, the one indisputable historical truth remains that it was China who acted as the, the Yuantou, the fountainhead, from whence tea as we know it was gifted to the world. Not everyone knows this, so let me get this amazing bit of info out there early. No matter where in the world tea is grown or how it is processed into the darkest, maltiest Assam black tea mixed with milk and sugar, or the most subtle-tasting white tea using the freshest buds picked before the spring rains in early April and selling for a thousand euros per hundred grams. It all comes from the same plant, Camellia sinensis. Camellia sinensis is either a tall tree, a small tree of three to five meters, or most often a dome-shaped bush of one and a half to three meters high. If you just leave them alone and let them grow wild, a tea tree can grow as high as 30 feet. In the original tea gardens stretching from Sichuan, Yunnan, and into the Golden Triangle area, there are tea trees hundreds and even thousands of years old spread out among 200 or so forest areas. The problem with tea trees is that you had to climb them to get the branches where all the tea was. In time, most were all cut down and replaced instead with tea bushes that were cultivated according to the long centuries of accumulated lessons learned through trial and error. As the tea story unfolds, you'll see from the earliest times, practically all the way into the Tang Dynasty, the kind of tea that was drunk by the ancients probably wouldn't be as popular as it is in our day. If you consider the Zhou or the Shang as China's earliest days, that's a good solid two millennia between that time and when Li Yuan and Li Shermin founded the Tang and tea started to taste good. Let me get some fine print that goes with that sweeping botanical claim about all tea leaves being the same. All tea comes from one single species, true. But you have multiple varieties depending on what part of the original tea garden the plant came from. Though the number of cultivars and varietals abound, basically, if you put a gun to my head and told me to narrow it down to just three, you have the leaves of the China bush, the Assam bush, and the Java bush. And the Java bush, known as Camellia sinensis cambodi, was a transplant of the Assam bush to Java and in Indonesia. So really, there's the China and Assam bushes, both a variety of Camellia sinensis. The leaves of the China bush are smaller than the Assam bush, and the China bush can live much longer and thrive in colder weather. The Assam bush has larger and softer leaves than the China plant and is a little less hardy than the Chinese varietal and grows best in subtropical regions where there's lots of rain. They're the same, but not the same. The word varietal is usually associated with wine grapes, but it's also used in the botanical world as well. The word cultivar is used more often in the tea world. The word was coined by the great American horticulturalist and botanist, Liberty Hyde Bailey. Cultivar comes from a combination of the terms cultivated variety. That is to say, it isn't a wild plant. It was cultivated. Just like when you take an animal from the wild and domesticate it. Sort of, but not actually the same thing. 
This is something that was applied to the Camellia sinensis plant for thousands of years and is the main reason why you'll hear about there being thousands of different cultivars of the tea plant. They use their knowledge of plant genetics to modify the tea bushes to thrive in very particular areas. Back in 1753, Sweden's great botanist Carl Linnaeus published Species Plantarum, the groundbreaking work that gave us the whole scientific nomenclature that we still use today. Plant hunters, the Indiana Joneses of their day, would traverse the world, bring samples back, and Linnaeus and those who followed him would classify everything. Before it was Camellia sinensis, the tea plant was initially classified by Linnaeus as Thea sinensis. In fact, he classified it further as Thea veridis for green tea and Thea bohi for black. No one in Linnaeus's time knew the big secret that green and black tea came from the same bush. The genus for tea was later renamed as part of the Camellia family. There are over 200 species and thousands of cultivars from this family of evergreens. So, tea trees and plants had always been around from man's earliest days, but the secrets of the leaf remained undiscovered. It took someone to have that first aha moment when, after consuming these particular leaves, they caught that first buzz or moment of pleasure. It wasn't enough simply to be cognizant of the sensation. Someone also had to pass the word around the forest and let others know. And then these others would, in turn, pass this information on further. Even the bitterest tea was cause for ripples of excitement to spread through the forests of Southeast Asia. Back in those Neolithic days, there were great discoveries being made every day in the forests, on the plains, and in the mountains. Sometimes the word spread... Sometimes the chance discovery didn't get propagated and mankind would have to wait another thousand years to rediscover it. And we'll see from the earliest mentions about tea, the Chinese had already noticed from the start that these leaves perked you up a bit. Because we can only speculate on tea's prehistoric or Neolithic history, we're stuck with written records and artifacts to definitively establish tea's place on the history timeline. Historians for a thousand years and more have combed through documents stating the earliest references to the Camellia sinensis leaf. As of this year, 2014, this earliest mention goes back to 59 BCE, the Western Han. This was the time of the good Emperor Xuan. How do we know this? By chance, there was a copy of a document called A Contract with a Servant. The contract discussed tea utensils, and called for someone to go down to Chengdu, capital of Sichuan, and to secure a servant who would perform an itemized list of services. Among the tasks requested of this servant to perform involved buying, brewing, and serving tea. Furthermore, this document credited to Wang Bao mentioned the city of Wuyang in Jiangxi province, not far from Nanchang. This is where China's oldest known Central Tea Market was located. They have thousand-year-old trees in Jiangxi, too. So this is as far back as historians can accurately go, and it could be confirmed that not only were people drinking tea in China, there was also a market in Wuyang and Jiangxi to deal in it. So this document was dated 59 BCE, 2,073 years ago. 
Julius Caesar was consul in Rome at the time. Before tea became known as cha in Mandarin, it had gone through several name changes. Jia, Tu, Chuan, Shu, Ming. The patron saint whose life and work we're going to look at in part three was Lu Yu. He lived during the heyday of the Tang Dynasty. His great work was the Cha Jing, or the classic of tea. For now, I just want to introduce him. He was sort of, if I may, the Elvis of literary people who wrote about tea. From the time of Lu Yu all the way into our present day, there have been many other great tea treatises and studies that followed. But Chinese have always put Lu Yu in a class by himself. He was the king, the Cha Sheng, the tea saint. Today in this episode, we're looking at the history of tea before Lu Yu. But tea goes way back further than Lu Yu and the Tang Dynasty. So where did it actually all begin in China? I know all the tea experts out there are daring me to tell the Shandong story. Well, I'm going to. Lu Yu said it happened, so I'm going to tell it. If you believe the myth, it all started with Shandong in the 2700s BCE. Shandong was the second of the three sovereigns I mentioned at the outset. In China folk culture, he's about as big as you can get. Shandong, the Yellow Emperor, <laughs> come on man, nobody could out-trump those two. As I mentioned in that CHP 60 episode, the age that Shandong lived in was that of the great flooding of biblical times and about a hundred years before the Great Pyramid. It was the time when Stonehenge was built, cuneiform writing was already being used in Mesopotamia. 2737 BCE is the date that seems to uniformly pop up in all sources as to the time when Shandong lived. Chinese folk tradition mentioned from the earliest times that it was Shandong who noticed that tea leaves brewed in hot water gave you a buzz. The Incas of the 6th century figured out the same thing from chewing coca leaves, and so it may have been with tea leaves in China. It was probably someone chewing the leaves who noticed that first mini jolt rather than the Shandong version of the story. But let's tell it anyway. Shandong, the divine farmer, the Wugu Xiandi, the emperor of the five grains. No agreement after all these years on exactly what the five are or were. Shandong, he has a lot of names. What is there to say about Shandong? He brought agriculture to China. He's the father of Chinese medicine and left behind a magnificent work called the Shandong Banzao Jing, the divine farmer's materia medica, or simply the Shandong herbal a copy of which I have in my CHP reference library, a gift from my good friend Clement in Shanghai. This great work, who knows who compiled it, was a collection of what everyone knew up to that point about plants, agriculture, and medicine. Shandong is also credited with inventing the Chinese calendar. I mean, he's big. Shandong also brought the secrets of tea to mankind. How did he do such a thing? There are multiple... Versions, the two most famous of which I will tell. The reason Shandong was able to write himself into the history books was mainly due to his willingness to stick his neck out and try out different plants and herbs to test their effects on his body. As anyone who saw the 2007 movie directed by Sean Penn called Into the Wild, doing this kind of thing is risky and life-threatening, to say the least. But through trial and error and some good fortune, Shandong compiled 
quite a list of herbal remedies that did wonders for a multitude of afflictions of the day. There's this story of Shan Nong tasting a hundred plants. This came straight from Lu Yu. Shan Nong was out walking one day and decided to sit down and rest. So tired and thirsty was he from all his work. He boiled some water in his pot. That was what people did back then. The Chinese figured that one out real early. Boil the water first. Live longer. This plain boiled water would later on be referred to as bai cha. Not the bai cha or white tea we know of today, but white in the sense of there wasn't anything in it. Just plain boiled water. So Shen Nong is boiling his water when lo and behold, several leaves from the tea tree he was sitting under blew into his cup. Of course, it was a tea tree and not a bush. Since no one had discovered tea yet, the trees were all lush and wild and growing everywhere in China's subtropical southwest. Shen Nong, no doubt, took these leaves falling into his pot as a good sign and naturally tasted that brew. It quenched his thirst, gave him a nice pick-me-up, and left him feeling all refreshed. Shen Nong wrote of tea in his Ban Cao Jing, quote, Tea tastes bitter. Drinking it, one can think quicker, sleep less, move more nimbly, and see more clearly, unquote. Coming from someone the likes of Shen Nong, that's quite an endorsement. And Shen Nong, who would have carried a Chinese passport, by extension, passed on no small amount of glory to the motherland for being the one to discover such a miracle and wonder. I read Shen Nong left his earthly form in Hunan province at a place called Tea Hill, or Chalin. There must be some element of truth to this, because I found the place on Google Maps. It's a little bit northeast of Jiangjiajie, so you know the divine farmer passed in beautiful surroundings. No mention if he went by natural causes or was poisoned to death. Shen Nong didn't call tea Cha yet. Way back then, tea was called Tu. It was far from the beverage we've come to enjoy. Shen Nong wasn't kidding when he said it was bitter. People familiar with Chinese characters will note that Tu, second tone, is written just like the character Cha, but with one extra horizontal stroke under the roof, which isn't a roof at all, it's a ren. The character Tu looks very similar to Cha, and it was natural that the character for tea, Cha, ultimately be derived from the character Tu. Users of the Liangshichou Dictionary, my stalwart going back to the 1980s, will note Tu is character number 4931. It stands for the Sanchez Olorisius, a vegetable also called in Chinese Ku Cai. It's also known as Sao Thistle or Smartwood, at least during the later Han, 23 to 220 CE. This vegetable called tu had a dual usage, meaning tea as well. In ancient writings, where the character tu comes up, like the Book of Songs and Book of Rites, the Shi Jing and Li Ji, historians had to be sure what kind of tu it was they were reading about. The bitter-tasting vegetable or the ancient name for tea, which was also bitter. You know, there's always smoke everywhere you go in ancient China. Historians want to behold the fire, not the smoke. The hard part was simply to find documents that had the character Tu. Then scholars would expend all their energies to figure out from the context. Are they talking about Cha or Ku Cai? Around the year 725, when Cha forevermore replaced Tu as the word for tea, no one told the fellows in Fujian province, and they kept on calling it Tu 
or in that part of China, Tay. And in their various mean dialects, Tu came out sounded like T. So when the first Western traders came to China off the coast of Fujian, they asked, what's this stuff called? And their Fujianese suppliers told them in their own dialect, it's called Tay. And as far as the first Europeans were concerned, Tay it became. Now, down in Guangdong province, including the capital, Guangzhou or Canton, they had heard about the name change when it happened, and therefore tea was cha down there. So everyone who ended up buying tea out of Canton knew it as cha or some variation thereof. And all those like the Dutch, who did their purchasing out of Xiamen, Fuzhou, Quanzhou, or wherever along the coast of Fujian, they knew it as tea. And since we in the West have the Dutch to thank for being the first Europeans to engage in the tea biz and bring it to the continent, we know it as tea rather than cha. They were the first to market. And as it often went in history, they got naming rights. I mentioned that in 59 BCE, during the time of the Western Han Emperor Xuan, there was a mention of tea in this Wangbao document that was discovered. At the outset of the second century, there was another work discovered called the Shuowen Jiezi. It was presented to the Han Emperor An Di. This was a Chinese dictionary to end all dictionaries that analyzed all the known Chinese characters to date. Tea was referred to as Ming and was described as buds picked from the Tu plant. There are no surviving copies of the Shuowen Jiezi. But from looking at this document from 121 AD, the time of Hadrian and Rome, we can at least deduce that the Chinese had figured out the buds were the best part of the tea plant, and that if you plucked them, more shoots would sprout forth. Today, some of the most prized and pricey green and white teas only contain the buds. It seems they also felt the same way 2,000 years ago. So, let me follow the breadcrumbs back to where we were with Shen Nong and the legendary discoveries he made and how he brought tea to humankind. That was a heck of a tangent. Another story about Shannong goes, and this is a variation of the Shannong tasting a hundred plants and herbs tale, that when Shannong tried those hundred plants, 72 of them turned out to be toxic. And as he lay there, possibly dying and knocking on heaven's door, you know what happened next. Some leaves from a nearby tea tree blew off the branches and landed right within reach of the divine farmer. He consumed these leaves and... Suddenly, he was feeling in tip-top shape. Shannong grabbed a basket and plucked and gathered as many of these leaves as he could carry. He consumed more of them, and slowly all the poisons from the six dozen kinds of toxic flora he tested were all purged from his body. So Shannong did a lot of research into this and passed this good word on to all the people in the land. As far as Lu Yu is concerned, we all have Shen Nong to thank for enlightening the world about the health benefits derived from tea. There's another story that says Shen Nong discovered tea when he came upon a burning tea bush and noticed the fragrance of the burning and roasting leaves. It grabbed his attention, and in no time at all he learned how to get this type of bush to yield its magical elixir. Shen Nong, being a folk god extraordinaire, so to speak, has about a million other legends and stories associated with them, depending on which Chun you come from in China. With this defining historical legend concerning Shannong and the discovery of tea, China has pretty much claimed squatters' rights with regard to who brought tea to the world. The thing about tea in Shannong's time, and pretty much all the way up to the Zhou dynasty, was that 
It was more of a medicine than something you might make for yourself just to kick back and chill. Joe Dynasty tea was supposedly very bitter, very heavy, even viscous. Tea as we know it in the time of the Joe Kings still had a long way to go. The Joe Dynasty saw the introduction of the three religions of China. Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. All three showed up on the scene roughly during the same time, during the Eastern Zhou. And all three religions will embrace tea, not so much for the taste, as much as for the health benefits, the rituals they will associate with its preparation and consumption, and the ability to offer a nice pick-me-up when needed. One in particular, Chan Buddhism, known in Japan as Zen Buddhism, incorporated tea into the religion itself. I include Buddhism in this group, even though it came from India. This religion early on discovered the merits of tea and how it served as a perfect antidote for thirst, fatigue, and a myriad of life's ills. Tea's journey from a novel discovery to a medicinal plant took its sweet time. Historians and archaeologists have uncovered you know, all kinds of mentions of tea. There is a mention of tea being sent from Yunnan in 1066 BCE as a gift to the king. This would have been the infamous and final king of the Shang Dynasty, Zhou Xin. Yes, the wine pool and meat forest king, the unforgettable Zhou Chirolin. Yunnan has the oldest tea trees around. I read 1,700 years old. They've been using tea in Yunnan at least since the Shang Dynasty, and had been boiling the leaves with many other products of the forest. I spent an afternoon drinking tea in Chengdu with a lovely husband and wife team. Boy, they sure knew a lot about tea. He was from Fuzhou, and his missus was from Chengdu. Anyways, he, he showed me a photo he took in front of a tree in a secret location in Yunnan that he said was almost 3,000 years old. Southern Yunnan, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see the oldest tea trees in the world... Yunnan, Sichuan, and Guizhou are where the oldest trees are, many of them over 30 feet tall. As far as China's recorded history goes, in the Shang Dynasty, tea was certainly around and was being offered as tribute to the Chinese king from Yunnan, where tea production was said to have first started. Tea was something that would spread south to north, but there was no Chinese character for tea invented yet up in the north where the Shang civilization was, so there's nothing written about tea in the oracle bones or the bronzeware. There's also the Ganlu legend. This is the story of Wu Li Zhen. He lived during the time of the Western Han and Emperor Xuan. The legend has it that Wu Li Zhen was on his way back from studying Buddhism in India around 53 BCE. He had cut seven tea plants and was carefully transporting them back to his home in Sichuan. And when he got to a certain point on Mengding Mountain, Mengding Shan in Sichuan, he planted these seven tea plants. And this is only 125 kilometers southwest of Chengdu. Then, once mature and ready, cuttings were taken from these original seven trees planted by Wu Li Zhan, who may or may not have lived. Over time, these cuttings were planted all over Mengding Mountain, leading to what you see today, tea heaven. But the tea from the original seven trees, later known as this yellow-colored Mengding Ganlu Cha, 
was reserved solely for the emperor. It also became known as Xiancha, the Tea of the Immortals. Because of Wu Lijian and his seven trees, this area in Sichuan, southwest of Chengdu, in Ya'an, Qionglai, a nice 90 minutes to two-hour car ride, is called the birthplace of tea cultivation in China. This is where it began. The original seven tea bushes planted by Wu Lijian are probably gone, but there are seven bushes still there today, protected, of course. We do know that ginkgo trees were also planted there at the same time, and those trees have been reliably dated to more than 2,000 years ago. Since the time of the Zhou, tea was already well-known to Buddhist monks, performing all those daily devotions. Sometimes those monks, even the abbot, they needed something to give them a natural boost to help them carry on throughout the day and do good deeds and keep on keeping on. Tea was the answer early on. Buddhist temples were all aware of tea and cherished the tea plant not just as a beverage and for its rejuvenating benefits, but also as a health product that, when mixed together with various other herbs or natural substances, provided medicinal relief or prevention of all kinds of Zhou and Han Dynasty ailments. And because the people also followed Buddhist teachings, it allowed them to become even more familiar with the beverage. Tea in the first centuries of the Common Era still hadn't become a fanciful and enjoyable beverage yet, not even for the aristocracy. They learned a few tricks in the Han Dynasty. They learned that steaming the tea leaves and then drying them before compressing the leaves into bricks helped cut down the bitterness. This was a big advancement. The spoilage was astronomical. Prior to steaming the leaves, they used to dry them by exposing them to charcoal fires. With these meager advances, tea remained bitter and was mostly consumed as part of some brew containing other natural ingredients. In the Sanguajir, considered the definitive source material for all things Three Kingdoms period, there was also a clear mention about tea that assures us in our day that the Chinese in the 3rd century knew of tea. There's a story about the drunken Eastern Wu King Sun Hao, grandson of Sun Quan, who had a loyal scholar, historian, and courtier named Wei Yao. His bio states in the San Guajie, the record of the three kingdoms, that because Wei Yao had a weak constitution and in no way could hold his own in King Sun Hao's frequent bacchanals, he was allowed to drink tea instead. Like I said, all we have to go on in these earliest days are snippets here and there of these minor but definitive references to tea. At the conclusion of the Three Kingdoms period, Sima Yan unified China briefly starting in 265. A half century later, the Jin were already on the decline. You probably recall from previous episodes that when the Jin dynasty fell and northern China was taken over by Mongol and Turkic tribes, a lot of the northern elites and aristocrats of the day, seeing dark times ahead, picked up and moved south. This was the first time in Chinese history a human migration from north to south happened in such a big way. Tea was already a familiar thing down in the south where it grew naturally. Now these northern aristocrats fleeing to the south after the fall of the Jin got to see up close what this was all about. This is how tea grew. Even though tea, or tu, as it was still called, had been around for so long, no one in China had yet 
figured out how to unlock all the magic contained inside the cells of the tea leaves. Tea's rise during the periods of the Shang, Zhou, Han, through to the Jin, continued to grow in esteem amongst the Chinese as a stimulant and something natural that seemed or had acquired a reputation for ameliorating all kinds of ills. And like I said, during the Eastern Zhou, when all the three religions of China embraced tea, that too had a great impact on awareness about tea. Tea came from the southwest of China. That much was clear. Yunnan and Sichuan. That was about as far away as you could get from Luoyang or Chang'an. So those places never really fell under the tight control of the central government. Qin Shi Huang, he was the first one to go down there and crack a whip and get everybody on board. And it's not surprising that the Qin conquests of the southwest opened the door to the introduction of tea in greater quantities as a tribute commodity into the north of China. The oldest surviving Chinese encyclopedia dates back to 350, right after the death of Constantine the Great in the West. It's known as the Arya. It explained, in all the detail and authority possible at the time, about words, family relations, utensils, heaven, earth, the hills and mountains, plants, trees, animals of all kinds, and animal husbandry. In the Arya, Tea is mentioned about in writing. The Arya is a pretty sacred text because it's attributed to the Duke of Zhou and Confucius. In the 3rd and 4th century, let me tell you, the Arya was the go-to source for most problems. It described tea as jia, third tone, a tree radical on the left and a jia character on the right, as is in the surname jia. That was the word for tea, jia. It was described in the Arya this way, quote, the plant is a small tree, like a gardenia. The leaves grown in the winter may be boiled to make a soup for drinking. Nowadays, those that are gathered early are called tu. Those that are gathered late are called ming. Another name for them is chuan. The people of Shu, meaning present-day Sichuan, call them kutu. All these ancient names for tea are said to have begun with the Sichuan people. If you visit the wonderful National Tea Museum in Hangzhou, not far from the tea gardens of Longjing, you'll see they say it was the people of Sichuan who gave us tea. The Ba Shu people get credit for being the first ones to basically figure out. By the time of the Arya, it was known people in southwest China were cultivating tea. Sichuan is Shu Guo, the kingdom of Shu. This is the ancient state some say grew out of the culture that evolved from the area where the Bronze Age Sanxingdui ruins were discovered in the last century. Ancient Ba Shu went back all the way to the Zhou King Wu. During and after the Zhou, the Ba state had been ruled by nobles and fiefed by King Wu after the Shang went down in final defeat. Once the Zhou King Wu, brother to the Duke of Zhou, had everything in place down there in the Ba state, the tribute began to flow up to the Zhou capital in Haoqing, near present-day Xi'an. Before the kingdom of Qin, led by Qin Shi Huang, united all of China, they first had to knock off all their opponents. In 316 BCE, 56 years before the birth of Ying Zheng, the Qin sent their military machine down to the southwest, and they rolled into the kingdom of Ba Shu and folded that part of China with all its tea trees and culture 
into this new nation that they were trying to build. And all this time, down in ancient Sichuan, people had been developing their own civilization side by side with these people from around the Yellow River. Now, thanks to the Qin conquest and later Emperor Shi Huang, all that culture and all the good things from Sichuan, including tea, began to more naturally flow northward. And this is how tea first became well-known in central and north China. What started off as a Sichuan and Yunnan thing, thanks to thousands of years of horticultural advancement, was now, and over the next several centuries, being planted, studied, and wholly embraced by those East China people who lived in the mountainous areas of Zhejiang, Jiangsu, Anhui, and Jiangxi, and not just to the east of China, but also southward to Guangxi and Guangdong, Although it was Yunnan and Sichuan who gave China tea, it would be these tea gardens in East China, planted with seeds and cuttings from ground zero in Sichuan and Yunnan, that would later become world-renowned, and their leaves would be sought after by connoisseurs, commanding prices in the thousands of dollars per kilo. Yeah, but in the time of the Zhou, the Qin, and into the Han, tea was still a bitter brew, man. And though it gave the imbiber a nice little buzz and perhaps some solace and enjoyment, bitterness was still its defining characteristic. In this 3rd and 4th century world, tea, or tu, or chuan, or she, or ming, it sure was bitter, and mostly a health product, and a luxury only afforded by the rich. No one had figured out quite yet how to process the leaves into an enjoyable beverage. The drink that Zhou, Qin, and Han-era people were ingesting came from leaves straight from the tree, and then later added into your cup of boiled water, Shannong-style. Following the Arya of the Zhou was the Guangya that also came out in the 3rd century CE, during the Three Kingdoms period. This was another work filled with commentaries and updates to previous renditions of the Arya. The Guangya was a good example of a compendium that was produced to bring previous scholarship up to date. Here, for the first time, we could read the following, quote, In the district between the province of Hubei and Sichuan, the leaves are plucked and made into cakes. Those made of old leaves are mixed with rice. To make tea as a drink, bake the cake until reddish in color. Pound it into tiny pieces, put in a chinaware pot. Pour boiling water over them and add onion, ginger, and orange. The drink renders one sober from intoxication and keeps one awake. Unquote. During the Qin, tea started to make its way northward and eastward, and with the victories of Han Wu Di and China's whole integration with worlds beyond their borders via the Silk Roads, this facilitated the introduction of tea to others whose world came into contact with China. That, too, caused the repute of tea to travel even farther and wider. And as I said, tea masters during the Han had brought their craft to a more refined state than their predecessors. But it wasn't yet a nice, tasty brew to look forward to in the morning or afternoon. The Liu Song Dynasty, 420 to 479, is about as early as we could reliably trace where the idea of real tribute tea began. This whole notion of tribute tea is important. What this involved was sending the best tea in the land to the emperor as a gift for his private use. Now, even though he was the emperor, he was still a man. 
And a man could only drink so much. So he had way more than he needed. And one of the perks of working for the emperor was you also had access to these teas that were given as tribute. And not only the court officials got to drink it, but his family and sometimes his friends as well. You know, the Liu Song. They're not the northern or southern Song who came later. The Liu Song was the first of the southern dynasties during the southern and northern dynasties period, 420 to 589. That's CHP episode 23. During the Liu Song, it was written, quote, 20 li from the city of Wuchang and Zhejiang, there is the one mountain which grows the tea reserved for the emperor as tribute tea, unquote. So, 5th century CE, not only has the cultivation of tea spread from Yunnan and Sichuan to the east of China, it's also becoming something so prized and valuable that it's worthy to be sent to the emperor as a gift. The great teas of China today, the ones you see for sale in dozens of websites or tea shops, all the most prized tea in all of China, pretty much all of them, started their brilliant career as an imperial tribute tea. And from this reputation, a particular village whose masterwork created the tea would gain legendary status and repute for being a tribute tea supplier to the emperor, and their tea would be even more prized and valued throughout the land. Later on in this long, drawn-out series, we'll look at most of these great and legendary tribute teas, and I'll let you know how you, too, could get your hands on a few hundred grams. If you had to do or die and draw a line where tea for sure began to be drunk as a beverage and not only as a medicine, the Sui Dynasty, 581 to 605, would have to be it. From the time of the Three Kingdoms into the Jin and later on the disunity that followed in the Nanbei Chao, the southern and northern dynasties, man, I'm telling you, a lot could happen in 360 years. During these years, between the time of Zhuge Liang, Yang Jian, and Sui Wendi, the knowledge and wisdom of tea had advanced to a point where the drink started to become a true art and a muse that will spawn a million poems and paintings. But keep in mind, even though tea as a beverage turned a corner around the Sui dynasty, it was still a brick tea world and would remain so for several more centuries yet. In this overview, we looked at the ancient history of tea. Oh man, there's so much more to go yet. Next episode, we'll focus on the Tang Dynasty, 618 and 907. Here is where tea comes of age and the world within China's influence gets hooked. So that's all for next time. A couple quick mentions. I want to give an S-H-O-U-T out to my man, Alec Ash, and the whole superb writer's colony at theanthill.org. You could skip right over my little piece about the glory years of Made in China and go check out William Poi Lee's story about the language of Taishan, Taishan, down in Guangdong Province, a place mentioned previously in CHB episodes. This piece in the Anthill is an extract from William's book, The Eighth Promise, an American son's tribute to his Taishanese mother. Great story about the Taishanese language entitled Talking Toysanese, the anthill, ladies and gentlemen. Alec Ash, Tom Pellman, Anthony Tao, and some of the best writers in the Northern Hemisphere. If you don't learn anything from reading some of the work they put out regularly for more than a year, then I declare you the smartest person in the world. While I'm at it, let me give a quick plug to a new book out entitled Shanghai Homes, 
Palimpsests of Private Life, from Harvard Professor Jelly. Holy cow. Palimpsests. That's another $64 word that means something that's altered but still having traces of its original form. This book just came out in November 2014 from Columbia University Press. Jie Li salvages intimate recollections by successive generations of inhabitants of two vibrant, culturally mixed Shanghai alleyways destined for demolition from the Republican, Maoist, and post-Mao eras, exploring three dimensions of private life, territories, artifacts, and gossip. The author recreates the sounds, smells, look, and feel of home over a tumultuous century. Any fans out there of Suan Tay's Shanghai Street Stories will dig this new book by Jelly. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from beautiful and lovely drought-stricken Los Angeles, California. 75 and sunny blue skies today. Ho-hum, what else is new? Winter's coming, and hopefully the reservoirs will fill up. But no one's counting on it. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.